Well, you've heard of Christmas miracles. Everybody likes a, you know, cheesy Hallmark Christmas movie, right? Some kind of Christmas miracle. What about a COVID miracle? I think we could use one of those, right? I mean, even the people that are here are cheering. Yeah, we want, a, we want a COVID miracle. That'd be nice. What if COVID was miraculously eradicated tomorrow? If all of a sudden it disappeared, it was eviscerated off the face of the planet, and the governments rejoiced and released all restrictions, and we were granted the ability to meet together as a church beginning right away. So you show up at church next Sunday and the place is packed and there's no fear. There's no masks, no faces hidden. There's no fear. We are gathered together as the people of God. We're ready to worship. The whole place is full, but there are a couple seats left right beside you. Is there anyone you don't want to show up and sit there? Anyone you wish would rather stay home or stand at the back than sit beside you as you worship God. There are all kinds of causes for offense in the world, right? People can gossip about you, do all kinds of evil against you. People can hurt you and wound you out there in the world. But we have a tendency as Christians to think we should be different in here, in the church, the community of believers, the kingdom of Christ. This should be a place where we're safe, where we're free from gossip, where we're free from anger, where we're free from all the evil things that people do to me out there. So sometimes what happens when someone does sin against us is the offense in the church feels larger than the offenses outside the church. Jesus wants to address that reality in our hearts this morning. The truth is that the kingdom that he is calling us to live in, the kingdom that he is calling us to create and to define by our lives is not a kingdom that is sin-free. As the kingdom of heaven comes to earth, so it came in Christ. When the king arrived, he established his kingdom, and it will fully and finally come when he returns on that last great day. But in the interim, in the meantime, as the kingdom continues to come, Jesus says clearly that our aim is not to be a community of people where there is no sin. That won't happen. But rather to be a community of people who freely, lavishly, forgive. A people who show each other and show the watching world what the rich and lavish and free mercy and forgiveness of our King looks like in the way that we treat one another. As Jesus describes this community, really what he's giving us in this passage is a picture of forgiveness. So, so what he's going to do, the way the passage sort of breaks down, first of all, he establishes the principle in the first two verses, and then he's going to give us a parable, a story to tease it out, to help draw out the affections and tease out what he means. And then so we're going to deal with each of those in turn. And then lastly, just think about the practice of what it'll look like for us. How will it look for us to actually walk out forgiveness? But first of all, we start with the principle, which is simply this, forgiveness is Required. If you are in the kingdom of Christ, if you are a member of this community, forgiveness is required. If someone asked you before church started this morning, what is required for entrance to the kingdom of heaven? 
what would you have answered? I think most of us know the basics, right? We know that what Jesus is looking for is repentance, that we turn away from our sins. We know that what Jesus calls us to is faith, that we put our trust in him, turn away from sins, trust in Jesus, his death for us. So there's repentance and faith, but what else? There are very few other things that Jesus specifies that if you do not have, you cannot come into his kingdom. But you know what's tops on that list? forgiveness. Look at verse 21. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? It's important to put the question in context a little bit for us here, right? Peter doesn't ask the question out of nowhere. We've been going through Matthew 18 over a few weeks now, and we, we know the context. We remember that, that what has just happened here is in verses 15 to 20, Jesus has detailed for us the process of what it looks like to go after a brother or a sister who has sinned. One of these, these precious sheep of God is going astray from the flock. They're wandering away into sin, and so the obligation on us to go after them and to call them back and, and to forgive them when they repent. This is what Jesus said in verse 15. If, if, he, if he listens, you have won your brother. So this winning your brother is the exercise of he repents and, and we forgive. So what Peter is asking here is how many times do I have to go through that process? If I go after him and he repents and I forgive him, how many times? Seven times? Well, remember, in context, the passage didn't start in verse 15. But even look back to verse 10. In verses 10 to 14, we're reminded of the heart of the Father who longs for the wandering sheep to be brought back. So Peter... Peter, this isn't a dumb question. This isn't one of those examples of Peter asking a dumb thing. Peter is reflecting back to Jesus what he has just heard. He's saying, listen, I know that you want us to go after those who are wandering. I know that we're supposed to go get them and they're supposed to repent. But how much is too much? How many times do I have to keep welcoming them back as a brother before I can just jump ahead to the end of the passage and before this and say, this is a tax collector. This is a Gentile. He's had too many opportunities to repent. Now we need to just simply move on. Now it's, it's important to, again, picture what Peter is saying when, when he says seven times. Again, we have a stereotype of Peter that he's the one who asks ridiculous, ridiculous questions so we don't take it seriously. But like, imagine if someone gossips about you. Like bad, they say bad things about you and you find out about it and you go to them and then they do it again and again, like three times. And then four more times after that, like that's, so, that's a lot of times, right? What Peter is doing is he, he's taking what the rabbis of his day had said, which is you forgive three times. The most gracious rabbis would say you forgive four times. And he's, he's taking the, the, this, this perfect number, the number seven. He's more than doubling what the rabbis say. Should we do it seven times? He's trying to impress Jesus with the extension of grace to say, look, I've heard what you've said about the shepherd. I've heard what you've said about trying to bring our brothers and sisters back. Should we do this seven times? But Jesus' answer is remarkable. Remarkable for at least two reasons. The first is just simply this, by the time you get to 77 times, Jesus' point is that you just you shouldn't even be counting. 
See, Peter's asking how many times, and Jesus' response in essence is, it doesn't matter, you don't count. See, seven and 10 are numbers of perfection. They're numbers of fullness. What, what he's done is he's taken the fullness times the fullness, he's multiplied them, and then he's added another fullness, another completion on top of that. The point is, however much you think is the perfect amount, a gracious amount, a lavish amount, a godly amount, and then add some more on top of that. If you are sinned against and can immediately recall that you have been sinned against this way before and can produce a list of times when it's happened, you've missed the point of Jesus' answer. You understand that, right? Jesus isn't, isn't saying you'll have fulfilled this command if you keep track and you get to 75 and 76 and 77 and now the 78th time you get to lower the boom. That's not the point. The point is you lose track. You stop counting. Answer is remarkable for that reason. It's also remarkable for this. It's, it's a reversal of the curse. It's a, it's a reversal of the vengeful spirit of humanity that is displayed in the curse. So there's this story all the way back in Genesis chapter four of the, the two lines, the one line, the seed of promise, and then the other line, the seed from the serpent that opposes the line of the promise. And the, the line of Cain, the, the evil line reaches its climax in the seventh generation, this man named Lamech, who's the first guy who's a polygamist in scripture. He takes two wives because he's like, one woman's not enough for me. And, and then he takes the, the pronouncement of justice that God had proclaimed that if someone goes after Cain to seek vengeance, then God's justice would be sevenfold on them. And in Genesis 4 and verse 24, Lamech, this boastful, wicked, evil man embodying all that's wrong with the world says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, which God ascribed, then Lamech's mine is seventy. Sevenfold. Seventy-seven times. You know, you know how dumb that is? You know how over the top that is? You hit me once, I'll hit you 77 times. It's barbaric. And yet it's so representative of how humans have functioned through history, right? Both on a micro scale in my life, but also on a macro scale in the wars of countries. You draw first blood, we'll hit you double. We'll come back with our full army. We'll get our allies. And on and on it goes, and it escalates, seeking vengeance. What Jesus is calling you to is an exact reversal. How extreme is Lamech in his vengeance? Jesus says, be that extreme in your forgiveness, in showing lavish mercy to those who sin against you. This is, this is the principle that you must not miss, friends. You will be sinned enough as a Christian. You will be sinned against enough that you will not be able to keep track. And in fact, you're gonna need to deliberately start forgetting. Jesus expects that your forgiveness will know no count, no limit, no bounds. He expects that you will forgive without condition or record of wrongs. Which, you know, sometimes when we start to think about forgiveness, we go, to the, we go to the really big things, right? The biggest offenses. But sometimes those aren't the hardest to forgive, really. 
Sometimes it's, it's the little things, the ongoing things, the repetitive things from the people that are closest to you in your life. It's, it's the roommate who just keeps leaving the dishes the way you told them not to leave the dishes. It's the friend who just freeloads and always forgets to send you the e-transfer later. It's the fellow church member who just keeps posting insensitive things. But it's not optional. Look at how Jesus ends the parable. He ends this passage. The last word in this discourse in Matthew 18 on what this kingdom community is defined as, what we're to be like, verse 35, so also my heavenly father will do. What's that? We'll punish, we'll throw in prison, we'll deliver his wrath on every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is required. It's not even the first time Jesus has said this. In Matthew chapter six and verse 14, this is what he said. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. The if is real, friends. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not Forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The principle is simple, but it is absolute. You will be sinned against, and you must show lavish, without counting or keeping record of wrongs type of forgiveness to your brothers and sisters. Jesus wants to make this point so clear. He doesn't want to just move on from it. He states it clearly and succinctly, but now he wants to tease it out. He wants to give us a story by which to remember it, but also to see the idiocy of unforgiveness in the life of a believer. So he tells us, secondly, the parable that forgiveness is not only required, but forgiveness is a response. It's a response to something. I want you to try to picture... um, Maybe someone who lives in your home with you and they're, I don't know, whoever that is, just get one of the people in your home in your mind and now they're sitting in a room and they're by themselves. They're doing something, whatever. They're sitting in a corner in a chair or something. So you picture them over there and, and you're in a different room. Everybody else is in a different room and all of a sudden that person starts laughing like crazy, like just busting a gut. They're laughing. Now, you know, you're, you're going to ask them something, right? What are you going to ask them? What What happened? What are you like? What are you laughing at? And if they say nothing, like if they say nothing happened, they're crazy. The person has lost their mind. So really, something has still happened. In either way, whatever this action is, this laughter when they're alone by themselves, it begs a question: What are you responding to? Jesus, as he tells this story of forgiveness, is saying you're going to be like a person laughing in a room, so that people are going to look at you and say, "What are you responding to? What is the response toward?" He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven, verse 23, has become like. This is the state of affairs now in the life of the kingdom that people will continue to sin against one another. But the kingdom of heaven has become like this state of affairs that the king wants to settle accounts with his servants. Now, servants, again, could simply be household slaves, but they could also be high-ranking officials who are well-trained and skilled and trusted with much which is why this parable makes sense. 
when you see the ridiculous amount of resources that this servant has been entrusted with. So to get some perspective on the debt, this man owes 10,000 talents. Uh, One talent, so one talent, is about 20 years wages. And this guy owes 10,000 talents. So we're somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 years of wages if you just worked every day and didn't spend any of it. You're talking about something in the neighborhood of six to seven, six or seven billion dollars. So you get the point, right? This guy's not gonna be able to pay this back. Like his debt is so far gone. It's like our national debt. It's like, I don't know, at this point, it's just a number. Like you're never going to be able to pay that off. The master then calls him to account. When the man clearly can't pay, he begs, or, or rather he is, he is told that he will be sold and his family as well, his wife and his children, Now, at best, a slave would be sold for somewhere in the neighborhood of $60,000, roughly equivalent. So, so by selling this man and his wife and his children, the king knows that he's not getting his money back. It's, it's punitive. It's justice. It is wrath. The servant falls on his knees and he pleads for mercy. He says, have patience. Have patience. I'll pay you back. There's no way he's paying him back. Everybody knows he's not paying him back. But he just asks because it's, it's his life. It's his family. It's everything. It's his only hope is to cast himself on the king for his mercy. And he casts himself on the king and he gets better than he ever could have asked for, better than he ever could have dreamed for. He doesn't get more time to pay it off. He gets the whole thing forgiven. The master, the king, his pity releases him of the debt. Now we have, um, we, we have mortgage burnings. You know, I, don't, I don't know if you've seen those. You take the paper, your mortgage is on when you pay it off finally. And you, but you wait till you pay it off. <laughs> then then once, it's, once it's paid off, you, you light it on fire and hopefully you have like a bucket or something there to drop it in. And you watch the thing burn because it's like this thing that shackled you your whole life. I'm counting the days. I only have to wait till I'm like 83, I think. And ours will be paid off. And then if I'm still allowed to handle a lighter at that age, then I'm going to burn that. You know, it's going to be great. But, but what's, what's that freedom? Why do we do that? Because it's this glorious freedom of knowing this debt, this burdensome debt that has captured us has finally been lifted off from us. Isn't this a glorious picture of what we've received in Christ? The debts that we had racked up by continuing to go astray, by sinning against God, the the, the whole direction of my life was one of self-governance, independence, determining what's right and wrong for myself so that my lies were justified in my mind. My adulteries were justified in my mind. My gossip, my hatred, my bitterness, my malice, all of it was justified in my mind. I determined that it was right, that it was justified, and I went that way, and I rejected God as king. I loved myself, or so I thought. I did not love him. And this whole direction of my life in rebellion against him, rejecting his laws and his ways, had amassed for me a debt that I knew would come due someday. Justice was unavoidable. The price was more than I could pay. 
But God, being rich in mercy, sent his son to pay the fullness of the debt that I owe. So that simply by pleading for mercy, I would receive what I never could have even thought to ask for. Full forgiveness, reconciliation, love and acceptance. The the mortgage has been burned. The record of debt has been canceled. The payment has been made. This king is more infinitely gracious and forgiving than I could have ever dreamed or imagined. That is the message of the gospel that is available to you. If you are burdened by your sin, by your shortcomings, by your failure, by your treason, by your wandering, if you, if you know that you owe a debt that you cannot pay, there is mercy for you if you ask for it. Well, this this servant receives its mercies he, he rejoices, but then he, he goes outside in this store and he, on his way home, he finds another servant, a fellow servant, and this servant happens to owe him some money. It's 100 denarii. Now, again, it's, it's important to do the conversion here because it helps put things in perspective. This is roughly, give or take, about $15,000. This is not pennies. This guy actually owes him a significant amount of money. If somebody came up to you and was like, hey, you know that $15,000 you just loaned me? I lost it. Sorry. Uh, you would be like seriously angry with that person. This is a significant amount. It is worth noting as we hear this story that in emphasizing the demand for forgiveness, Christ does not deny the significance of the sin against you. He is not saying, don't worry, the sin against you is just little. He's not saying it's not even worthy to consider. He acknowledges this is for us a significant amount. There is significant cost that you are taking on yourself if you choose to forgive. And this fellow servant who owes the $15,000, he he responds the exact same way the first servant did. He falls on his knees. He pleads for mercy. He asks for patience. He says, I'll pay it off. And he actually has a reasonable request. I mean, 15 grand, it's a lot, but he probably could pay it off. But nevertheless, the first servant is so mad, he starts to abuse him. He takes him. He throws him in prison until he could pay his debt. He seeks justice rather than mercy. There is no mercy with this servant. So the other servants are dismayed. See, they know. They heard about the mercy that he'd received, the forgiveness that he'd received, and so they know what his response should be. Intuitively, they know, if this is what the king has done for him, I know what his response should be with this other one. They know what the response should be, and it's not that, so they go to the king, and they tell the king what has happened. Verse 32 Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? This was the only right response. The only right response to forgiveness we've received is to show forgiveness to others. So the master, it says, in his anger, delivers this servant over 
to the judgment. He's not sorrowful. He's not lamenting. He's wrathful. He's angry with those who claim to have received his mercy but do not respond in mercy to others. If you live with bitterness, with hard-heartedness towards others, with unforgiveness towards another believer, it's not because what they've done against you is so bad. It's because you have not responded rightly to the forgiveness that you've been promised in Christ. You are the foolish servant in this story. And you know what's really embarrassing? All the other servants can see it. Jesus in his mercy is telling us this story so that you'll realize that everyone knows what the right response from you is. Whether or not you do. Jesus wants you to feel the absurdity of saying, God has forgiven me, but I'm not going to forgive them. If you are a citizen of his kingdom, there's only one way to respond to the sin of others in light of the forgiveness you've received. You must forgive. Forgiveness is required because forgiveness is a response to the forgiveness we've received But we need to put this into practice. We need to actually do this. So lastly, we want to think about the practice of forgiveness, which which really, again, is just a reflection. It's a reflection of what we've received. We show it to one another, and we show it to a watching world. How do we actually do this? How do we live this out? We understand that it's required of us, that we need to respond this way, but how do we do it? My friends, start with this. Start with the king. Start with the king. This is where Jesus starts. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, the kingdom of heaven has become like a king. See, we would expect him to use an object. The kingdom of heaven has become like flower. It's become like a field, like seed. Here he uses a person. The kingdom of heaven has become like a king. It's become like this person. The standard or the rule of law for relationships between servants is the heart of the king. The character of the king becomes the law of the citizens. When Christians consider how we are to interact with one another when it comes to sin, the simple question we need to ask is, how has my king treated me? Our lives, in every sense, are now being given over to re-presenting the gospel to each other, and to a watching world. How has God related to me? We can ask ourselves questions like, what did I deserve? And then pause and actually contemplate what it was. What was our fate apart from Christ? What is it that we've been saved from? What did I deserve from God? And then a second question, what have I received? What did I deserve? What have I received? In other words, if we're going to be people who are skilled at forgiving others, we must be a people who are skilled at remembering and applying the gospel to ourselves. Frankly, I think our biggest problem with forgiveness is often not that the other person's sin is too big in my eyes, 
but rather that the gospel as it relates to me is too small. If I'm not regularly being refreshed in the mercies, the lavish mercies and kindness of God to me in the gospel, if I'm not regularly applying the message of forgiveness of sins to myself in the gospel, if I'm not regularly going back to my king and pleading for mercy and receiving it all over again, I'm not going to be ready to forgive anyone else. We must start with the king be a people who are in close communion with him, confessing our sins, receiving forgiveness, and living in the good of that, we will be ready to begin showing it to others. So we start with the king, and then second, keep it in the family. You notice the way this question is framed? In verse 21, this, this is remarkable. How often will my brother sin against me? Again, Remember, in the context, Jesus has been talking about the sheep that are part of the fold that start to wander. He's been talking about people who are part of the church who begin to go astray in sin but are brought back. And the distinction is between those who are in the community versus those who are tax collectors and Gentiles out of the community. So Peter's question when he asks, how often will my brother sin against me, is is specifically with regards to Christians, those who are in the community of the king who are sinning against one another. Jesus wraps up the parable the same way in verse 35. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And this brother-to-brother language is, is really reminiscent of the reality that Jesus, through the opening half of chapter 18, was emphasizing the heart of the Father. There is one Father, and the rest of us are siblings. We're brothers. We're sisters. So this is specifically about how we forgive one another. There's much we could think about on the topic of forgiveness, about loving your enemies over against praying imprecatory psalms of judgment on them. There's much we could say or think about whether or not we forgive those who don't repent, whether or not we forgive those who don't ask for forgiveness. That's not what this passage is addressing. We need to just let this parable be this parable. Jesus is talking about sin and offense within the community where there is repentance brother to brother and sister to sister. Here here I want to offer a clarifying word. Uh, Almost as an aside, as we think about forgiving one another limitlessly, without restraints, In the kingdom, there are a couple of things it's important to note we are not saying. One is this. We are not saying that you should stay in an abusive situation simply because the offender asks for forgiveness. We are still people of justice and truth. We are still people who live under the authority of the law of the land. And the law of the land needs to be engaged We are still a people of love, and love does not enable or facilitate sin. If the continuing of a relationship simply enables and facilitates sin, you are not loving that person. We are not saying that forgiveness is simply pretending that the thing didn't happen. 
right? If someone, if someone steals all your money, you don't have to give them your next paycheck as an expression of forgiveness. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus doesn't take someone that's saved today and make them an elder tomorrow. One of the, one of the requirements for an elder is specifically that he not be a recent convert. When Paul decides and acts not to take John Mark on a second missionary journey, it's not because Paul hasn't forgiven him. It's because he is untrustworthy based on his past actions. There is a category for someone to be forgiven and yet not yet trusted. We're not saying that you instantly trust someone who has broken that trust. So what are we saying? We're talking about how you relate to your family members in a way that reflects the king, specifically, as Jesus says, from your heart. Jesus is calling us to a stubborn insistence to crush every impulse towards vengeance or spite or bitterness or malice or anger. He wants us to fight hard against any impulse to pay them back or to punish them for what they've done. He's calling us to be resolute in our commitment to divorce the sin from the person so that when we look at the person, they are not defined by their sin in our view or our estimation. That's my brother, my sister. That's the sin over there. My relationship with them is that my heart is for them. It is open to them. I love them and I long for their good. This is how the family is to relate to one another, where there is repentance, confession of sin, brokenness, and forgiveness. This is what Jesus means when he says, you must forgive your brother from your heart. The last thing we need to take note of here in this passage, if we're aiming to be a people of forgiveness, is simply this. We need to fear need to fear unforgiveness. This language is unwaveringly strong. Jesus says you will go to hell. He says you will suffer the wrath of God if you do not forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. That's not because we earn God's forgiveness by our forgiving, but it is because if we don't forgive others, it proves that we have not understood the forgiveness we've received from God. We don't know the gospel. We don't know the very heart of our Father whose passion is to see the lost, the broken, the wandering, the hurting, the sinful restored to the community. That's his heart. And if you don't get that, you don't get him. Why should patterns of bitterness and unforgiveness, why should they disturb us? Why should they strike fear into us? Well, it's because if forgiveness is a reflection so is unforgiveness. We reflect what we're pointed towards. We reflect what we're looking at. We reflect what we're facing. And if what we are reflecting is bitterness and anger and distancing and jealousy and malice, it's because we're looking at the wrong thing. And what we're reflecting is actually telling us about our own heart. So Jesus says, if you look at your life and you see malice, if you see hatred, if you see bitterness and unforgiveness, fear that. And flee to Christ all over again. Receive forgiveness for yourself so that you could respond to that forgiveness by reflecting it to others so that the watching world would see a, a, a COVID miracle a community of people who, yes, yeah, sin against each other, but forgive each other lavishly. If 
we got to come back to church next Sunday, is there anybody you need to make things right with now? What, what if we don't? What if we're stuck in our homes for another year? Is there someone in your home you need to forgive? We are not called to be a people, a community of people who never sin, but a community of people who glory in forgiveness, the forgiveness we've received, we've responded to, we reflect to others. May God make it so. Let's pray. Father, we need mercy. We need your grace by your spirit to see accurately how our sins have separated us from you, but how your lavish mercy, your kindness, your grace to us, your forgiveness to us overwhelms and overshadows all the ways that we ourselves have been sinned against. Give us grace to respond to the forgiveness we've received and forgive others that the world would see your love, your mercy in us. We pray in Jesus' name.